invite everyone to uh, turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 1. Uh, if you've got the Black Pew Bible, that's on page 994. Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20 is where we will be this morning. And so uh, would you please stand with me as we read God's word. Gracious Lord, we ask that right now you would open our eyes, open our ears, and open our hearts to you. Lord, that you would speak to us, that we might hear the call of Jesus, and that our lives might be changed. We pray in his name. Amen. Mark 1, starting in verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he, that's Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is God's inspired word for us this morning. So please be seated. As we continue today into the Gospel of Mark, we're going to really zero in on this invitation that Jesus offered to his disciples. And, and we're going to see, I think, that this is an invitation, hopefully we'll see this, that Jesus continues to offer to each of us today. Okay, the invitation comes with three parts, not coincidentally, we have three segments of our message this morning. Uh, hopefully it's a little bit simpler and clearer to understand than last week, but here's the three parts of that invitation. The first, follow Jesus. The second, he will make you. And the third, join his kingdom work. Okay, first, follow Jesus. If you don't hear anything else this morning, if you're just planning to take a nap, that's fine. Just listen to this. Jesus calls you and invites you to follow him. Now, you might remember that just before this, Mark in, in, in Mark 1.14 mentions that Jesus is starting his public ministry. That means that he's starting to teach and preach out in the open. And, and this was happening in the northern region of Galilee after John the Baptist was arrested. Now, John had been baptizing in a region uh, which was in the wilderness around the Jordan River. Now, if you're not familiar with the geography of Israel, how many of you have been to Israel? Show of hands. All of those people you want to talk to about this more than me, but I, I can read a map. And so, you know, Sea of Galilee is up in the north, and this term sea is actually a misnomer because that's a freshwater body, uh, freshwater body of water, right? We would call that a lake. Okay, so the Lake of Galilee is up in the north, and in in where John is baptizing is down in the south, and the, the, the Sea of Galilee is already at about 700 feet below sea level, okay? And that's going to be important as you look later into, like, the, the storms that would come across the Sea of Galilee, right? Like, they're coming down and over these ridges and 700 feet below sea level. But, but the Jordan River flows from the north down to the south, and what's down at the bottom is the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea, if you're not aware, that is the lowest, uh, the shore around the Dead Sea is the lowest elevation on earth. That's at 1,400 feet, more than 1,400 feet below sea level. Nothing flows out of the Dead Sea. 
And so the Dead Sea is actually a sea. It is made up of salt water, the consistency of which is something like 34% salt. Uh, just for reference, the ocean, anyone know how, how much percent salt the ocean is? Someone said three, right? Three and a half, that's, that's it. So 10 times the amount of salt content in the ocean as in the Dead Sea, which means that nothing can live there, right? Just some small bacteria. If a fish winds up going down the Jordan River all the way into the Dead Sea, what's it gonna wind up? A salty fish, but dead, right? And so Jesus begins his public ministry in the north, but remember that he was back in the south with John the Baptist. And, 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 and remember also that as we look through the gospel of Mark, that Mark is a history of Jesus, but it's not necessarily written to be a, a chronological history. So the things that he's telling us are true. It's not always going to, you know, if you put all four gospels side by side against each other, sometimes they're going to have different things in different orders. And that's because of the emphasis that that author is trying to convey. And sometimes you're going to have things that are not present in one gospel, but is present somewhere else. And sometimes that's because the, you know, the gospel writer, like the gospel writer of John, who was the apostle John, writing at a later time, he, can, he looks back and he knows, okay, what's been written about Jesus? He's going to sort of fill in some of those blanks. And so John writes a little bit later in, in John chapter 1, verse 35, we read, that, uh, we read this, the next day after John was standing with two of his disciples... He looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples who heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So here in the Gospel of John, we see that the apostle, the disciple Andrew, actually first meets Jesus down in the Jordan wilderness. The other disciple of John the Baptist there, we believe to be the disciple of John, right? The, the Gospel writer himself is writing about this encounter. And, and as they're there with John the Baptist, they see Jesus walk by and they're intrigued because John had been saying some pretty interesting things about who was going to come after him. Things like this, after me is one who was before me. And he must become greater, I must become less, and behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now when Jesus walks by and John goes, hey, that's the guy, well now they're pretty interested and they start, they, they go and follow Jesus to where he's staying. They want to know more about who Jesus is. Now, at this point, the timeline of, of how things happen is a little fuzzy. Okay, once again, Scripture is not always trying to be chronologically accurate. So did this happen before Jesus spends time in the wilderness, or did, did this happen afterwards? Uh, it's not quite clear. Is it important? It's not really important. Okay, the, the idea is that these things happen. It, what, what is important is the fact that this happened before Jesus started his public ministry up in Galilee. It's also important to remember and to see that John himself had some disciples. Now, what is a disciple? A disciple is a word that, that literally just means student or learner. You know, John had disciples of his own. Other, dis other rabbis had disciples as well. And a disciple was someone who would, who would come and sit at the feet of a teacher and they would learn. 
disciples weren't people that were chosen by teachers, but they were people that would self-select, you know, they would hear somebody and want to come and sit at their feet because they liked what they were hearing. It's kind of like, you know, going to church. Probably nobody made you come to church. Or maybe you made your kids come to church or maybe, you know, something else like that. But, you know, nobody makes you come. You can choose to go where you'd like to go. Um, We do some things to entice people to come to church, right? Like Danica hand ground some coffee this morning and it's really good. And we have Krispy Kreme donuts again. So, you know, if if donuts and coffee are what make you want to come to church, then hopefully, you know, this is at least some place to go. I don't know. Probably better than going to Krispy Kreme. I was there this morning. That's not a great place to hang out for all, all Sunday morning. But hopefully you came here because you want to hear the word of God and because you want to worship God and you believe in the importance of gathering as a family of brothers and sisters. But, but typically people would select the rabbi, the teacher that they wanted to learn from. And so now back, back up in the north, Jesus, who had already met Andrew, he had already met John, now he's walking around the sea that's not really a sea, right, the Lake of Galilee, and it says that he's proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. So repent and believe in the gospel. As he's walking around, he looks and there's a group of fishermen. He looks over and he sees a familiar face. Hey, there's Andrew, just so happens to be with his brother Simon amongst a crew of fishermen. Remember, disciples typically choose their teachers, but here, what does Jesus say? Jesus, Jesus goes out and starts to choose his disciples. He walks right up to them and says, hey, follow me. Right, follow me. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says, follow me? Well, this is really an invitation to join him in his mission. You know, he's already started his ministry. The message of the kingdom is this, to repent and to believe. And remember that to repent actually has two parts to it, right? It means to, to turn away. So you're heading one direction, and you turn away from that, and you start heading the other direction. And we were watching a, a TV show this week, and we were, uh, this show had a guy that, that was on a conveyor belt of a trash compactor. And something got stuck in the trash compactor, and so he goes and flips off the, the power, and he starts walking towards the trash compactor. And what happens? Somebody comes and flips the power back on, and so he turns away from trying to get the thing out. He did, and, and he doesn't just stop, right? So repentance isn't just about stopping and turning, but it's also about walking the other direction. So what he does desperately is try to run in the opposite direction away from the trash compactor. This was a fictional show, so of course he gets swallowed up into the trash compactor and turns into like a little bag of person. But, you know, that's, you don't see a lot of, you don't really see that, so. Um, but, right, to this idea of repentance is not just about turning away it's about heading in the other direction. That's what it means to repent. And then what does it mean to believe? Well, believing isn't just something that, that we affirm. Right? It's not just, okay, do you believe that the earth is round? Yes or no? I'm not going to even ask that question because I don't want to know if you don't believe the earth is round in here. But, you know, there are certain things that we say we believe, but how do we know what we believe? What's really easy, you just look at what you do, right? See, Jesus doesn't say, hey, he doesn't come up to him and say, hey, guys, just, just confess your sins. Hey, pray this prayer, and then you're good, and I'm going to keep going on. He doesn't say that to them. What does he say? He says, repent 
and believe. And these two things, they're about what you do and not just to what you say, right? Repentance is more than just saying you're sorry. It's about charting a new direction with your life. And in both repentance and belief, it's something that we prove over time. And so what does that look like? Well, just look at the life of these fishermen. You know, for Simon and Andrew, fishing is not just something that's recreation. It's not just something that they do to pass the time. This is a profession. You know, put food on the table for them. For James and John, it was even more than that. This was the family business, right? Their, their dad is there with them. Um, they're all working together. So it's really important to acknowledge that as Jesus calls them, he's not really calling them away from, from something that we would consider bad. You know, uh, fishing wasn't a bad thing. This is, this is a respectable job. It's, it's a hard job. It's the, the life of a working man. And, and hopefully, you know, you, you work hard. At the end of the day, hopefully you have something to show for it. You can either put some fish on your table or some money in your pocket. But in order for them to respond to the call of Jesus, they've got to leave that life behind. See, they can't follow Jesus and continue to be fishermen at the same time. They can't, they can't follow Jesus from a distance. This isn't an invitation for them just to say, yes, I believe in you, Jesus, and he keeps going around the sea, talking to other people. See, Jesus wants them to come and to walk with him and to sit with him and to eat with him and to spend time with him. He wants them to be his disciples, to learn and to witness everything that he's going to say and do. And in order to do that, they're going to have to drop their nets leave their boats, and in the case of James and John, even say goodbye to their father in order to follow Jesus. See, following Jesus, even for us, isn't just about not doing the bad things anymore. Right? Fishing wasn't bad, but this is about seeking the very best things. See, Jesus doesn't want you just to start doing good things. Right? He doesn't want good things from you. He wants the very best things for you. And how do we get the very best things in life? Well, we follow Jesus. And what comes next in the process? What happens when we follow? But this part is actually kind of beautiful when you think about it. We follow Jesus and then he will make you become. And what, who's the onus on here? As we follow Jesus, who is it that is doing the work in our lives? It's all Jesus. He doesn't gather the disciples and say, all right, guys, here's the game plan. Okay, we're going to divide up. James and John, you're going to head west. Peter and Andrew, you're going to head east. I'm just going to walk across the water, and we're going to meet around the other side of the lake. And then just tell me what happens, does he? Like, he doesn't just give them an instruction manual and say, hey, go figure this out all on your own. And then I'll come back later and we'll compare notes and we'll see how you messed up and, and how you can improve. And, you know, we'll go over your quarterly performance. Jesus doesn't do that. What does he do? He invites them to come, but then he also does the work in their lives. Now, he doesn't tell them how to do it. He doesn't tell them how long it's going to take. He doesn't tell them even necessarily where they're going. He just says, come follow me and I will make you become. Now, if you and I were assembling a team of people and we were trying to change the world, I'm guessing that we would probably have a bit more rigorous selection process than Jesus as he's calling his disciples. You think of like a prestigious college, right? 
you have to put your resume together. You've got to look at your GPA, you've got to look at your SAT scores. Um, Gavin, what do you have to do, like physical fitness stuff to get into West Point, right? They want to know how many crunches and pull-ups you can do. You've got to talk to your friends and your neighbors. They're going to look at your job history. You know, if you're trying to assemble an elite squad of guys that are going to change the world, fishermen are not going to be on your list. If somebody has some family, you know, has a family and they come from some money, that might help. But these guys, they've got pretty much nothing. You know, what do they have to offer to Jesus? But, so it's striking that Jesus doesn't choose, when he goes to choose disciples, he doesn't choose the best and the brightest. Now, these guys are hard workers, but they're commoners. They don't come from good bloodlines. They're not educated. They're not wealthy. So why would Jesus choose these guys, and the answer is that because he was going to make them become what they needed to be. And that's how Jesus is with each and every one of us. And we see it all through scripture. We see it all through life. The people that we think God should choose, he often ignores. And the people that we often ignore are so often the ones that God chooses to work with. So think of that little shepherd boy, David, uh, who had seven older brothers. And as God sends the prophet Samuel out to choose the new king for Israel, he, he sees the oldest, strongest, biggest, baddest brother, and he thinks immediately, hey, this is the guy. Right? And what does God say? Eh, no, try another one. He goes through again and again and again seven times, and finally... They get to the guy that's not even there. This is the little boy that's out tending the sheep. And God says, hey, that's the guy that I want because I see his heart. I see that he is seeking me, and that's enough for me to work with. And that's kind of like these disciples as well. They were already seeking the kingdom of God. They were already disciples of John the Baptist. They had heard the message to repent, and they really, really knew that they needed to do something else. Right, that the religious system of their time wasn't working for them. They were trying to work their way towards God, and life wasn't working. They didn't have a whole lot to offer, but they were willing and ready to answer the call. So the religious leaders and the other rabbis of the day scoffed at Jesus' choice of disciples. Right, these were guys that were a little bit more than just rough around the edges. You think about who they were. they were. They were often ignorant of the religious customs. They didn't know all the laws. They were brash and arrogant. They overlooked women and children. One guy was a tax collector, which to them was like a traitor, right? Who had sold out his own people. One was a, a lover of money. They're constantly arguing and, and bickering, and Jesus is often scolding them by calling them like little children as they're going around. They didn't even seem to understand what Jesus was saying most of the time. And so why did Jesus choose them? Well, he didn't need that elite squad of people who were going to go do good works for him. But he wanted to show his power by demonstrating his work in and through them. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says, We are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And again, he writes in, in Philippians 1, he says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. 
So, so Jesus created us for good, but then he actually also starts the good work in us when we are unwilling and unable to do it ourselves. And we also have this great promise that he's going to complete that good work that he had once started in us. And so Jesus doesn't say, hey, figure this out, go learn how to be a fisherman and fisher of men and come back and, and, and tell us what you found. Uh, he doesn't say, well, you've seen me a little bit, you know, you've seen me long enough, just go do it on your own. But he invites them to come and to imitate him, right? to, to participate with him, to watch and to witness what he's doing. And Jesus is never in a hurry. He's never in a hurry. How fast did Jesus move in his mission on the earth? Three miles an hour, right? How long does it take you to walk a mile? About 20 minutes. Did Jesus have less than three years to, to set about his mission and change the world? And he did it at the pace that any one of us could easily walk. But think of Usain Bolt. That's a guy that can run 27 miles an hour, which seems really slow when you're driving a car, but it's really fast if you're, if you're running, right? And we think Jesus should show some urgency. Jesus should do something quickly. And yet what does he do? He, he assembles this very shady group of guys and he starts walking and they follow him. And that's the way that Jesus often works in our lives too. Slowly, progressively, over time. And Jesus met John and, and Andrew at the river and then later on he sees them and he calls them back. You know, how many of us have encountered Jesus maybe at one place and we were sort of intrigued and, and, and we wanted to know more and, and we didn't make that uh, you know, decision, if you will, to follow Jesus right then. But later as we heard and we heard the gospel again and we heard it again and at one point God finally opens our eyes and we can see who he is. And even as we start to follow Jesus, he slowly but surely begins to kind of smooth away those rough edges as he does that work of transforming our hearts and transforming us from the inside out. See, Jesus makes us who he calls us to be. When do we want answers? When do we want change? We want them now, right? We want them yesterday. But in God's mercy, he doesn't even allow his disciples to know what they're heading into. He doesn't even let them see what's going to come before, come before them. He just says, hey, follow me and I'll do that work in you. I will make you all that you need to be. And so where are we following him and what are we turning, what is he turning us into? Number three is to fishers of men. Now, what does it take to be a fisherman? Usually you've got to have some gear, right? Uh, you may need to study some fish. Uh, you probably like to talk about fish if you're a fisherman. Hopefully you like fish uh, if you're a fisherman. But without a doubt, the thing that makes a fisherman a fisherman is that you go fishing. That's pretty much it. You know, I have seen, um, I'm not a fisherman by any means, although I have seen some very large fish get caught. The largest fish I've ever seen caught are by like your six-year-old son using a hot dog and a Fisher Price um, princess uh, rod in the little pond that's probably about as big as this table and just dropping it in in 30 seconds, you're pulling out a 10-pound bass, right? That's not the type of fishing that Jesus is talking about doing. 
And that's not the type of fishing that's happening on the shore of Galilee. This is not rod and reel fishing. These guys go out and they, they cast fish. Have you seen this before? Where you take the net and you gather it in and you kind of hold it in your teeth like this. And you gather it like this and then you cast it out. But then you still also have to, so you actually have like three hands. Because you've got to catch, you know, hold on to it with one hand. You throw it out with another hand and you throw out the net. And what do you catch when you throw out a cast, a cast net? What type of fish are we going for? Whatever's in the water, right? Whatever's there, that's what you're going to get. In Luke 5, we see that when Jesus showed up, okay, another, another version of this, another telling of this same encounter. When Jesus showed up to meet Andrew and Simon, right before he calls them, it says that they had actually spent the entire night out on the water fishing, and they caught nothing. Now, that's like most of my fishing experiences. You know, you go out and you fish a long time, and you've got nothing to show for it. So they did this all night. They have nothing. Jesus comes to them and asks if he can get in their boat. He takes them out a little way from shore, and he starts to preach. And at the end of it, Jesus says, hey, let's go out a little bit further and put your nets down. Now, immediately, you're thinking these guys are exhausted. They're frustrated. They've been trying this all day. They know what they're doing. And Jesus has no idea, right? He's just a random guy that, that walks up, and he's a good teacher. Is he a good fisherman? We don't know. He's a carpenter. And he tells them to cast their net, and how many fish do they catch? We don't even have a number. It just said so many fish that the nets start to break. I think this is really interesting that, you know, the, again, the book of Mark is written from the perspective of, of Simon Peter. Simon Peter was a fisherman. Have you ever known a fisherman catch a fish and not tell you about it? It's, it's like Bo Emerson will still tell you about the back nine at Pebble Beach because he had the most incredible experience and he loves golf, right? If you're a fisherman and you love fish and you catch a whole bunch of fish, you're going to want to tell everybody about it. And yet here in Mark, we have nothing. And yet it happened right there. Why doesn't Peter talk about the fish that he caught? because his life has changed. It's not about the fish anymore for him. This is about the fisher of men who stepped in and now has called him. But Jesus has caught Peter and Peter's heart, Peter's desire, Peter's focus isn't on the fish. The fish are so unimportant that he doesn't even mention the fact that they went out to go fish. Peter knows Jesus. Because Peter received the call of Jesus and Peter started to follow Jesus and Jesus started to do that work in Peter's life and he gave him a better job. Right? This, this invitation to participate with him in his kingdom work of becoming a fisher of men. Now, what does it mean to be a fisher of men? This literally means to proclaim or to share the good news of Jesus. Right, to, to invite other people into that same thing that you have experienced because you know and believe that Jesus is good news, not just for you, but for the world. Now again, how do we fish? Well, the way of Jesus is just, in, in, the, in the way of the first century, was literally throwing out the net. And what type of fish are you trying to catch? Whatever you can get. You know, who are we as, as followers of Jesus called to fish for? The answer is whoever will listen. Whoever will listen. It's your friends, it's your neighbors, it's your coworkers, it's 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 the 
the cook's guy that comes to your door. It's the Jehovah's Witnesses guy that's trying to convert you to his religion, right? You never know who Jesus is calling to yourself. And so the offer is constantly to fish, right? To cast out the net and to see what God is going to do. You know, people by and large don't come to Jesus because they see like a, a church website or an advertisement or because they watch The Chosen or something like that, right? Not that there's anything wrong with any of those things. But they come to know Jesus because they know somebody that knew Jesus. It's like with our adoption. They, they, I think David was saying one Sunday that every adoption leads to another adoption. And, and our adoption is happening because other adoptions that happened before. People that know Jesus come to know Jesus because someone else knew Jesus and they told them about Jesus. And that's exactly what it is to be a fisher of men, to share the good news of Jesus with everyone. It's the invitation for each of us to remember back where we were and who we were when we were caught up in the life of Jesus. When each of us were dead in our sins. Now, they weren't all as egregious as some, but each of us were far from the life that Jesus offers. We all want good things in life, but what does Jesus offer? He offers the very best. And he doesn't demand it from you, but he offers it to you as a gift. So the question for us is not just do we believe in the idea of Jesus. And that's not what we're trying to offer as well. Hey, you should intellectually understand who Jesus is. No, this is an invitation to come and to meet the Jesus who has changed our lives. Are we really following Jesus? Have we received his invitation? Have we allowed him to make us become what we were always meant to be? Is our trust in him? Is our joy in him? Do we really believe this? And if we're not actively following Jesus, the simple question is, where are we headed? You know, how's life working out for us? What's the purpose and destination? And where, where is our trajectory? If we had everything that we prayed for and hoped for, where would we be? There are so many good things that demand all of our attention, right? And not, not all of them are bad. Some of them are good. But there's only one thing that's best. Have we chosen the very best? See, that's who Jesus is. That's what Jesus is. He wants to give us the best gift that we could ever receive, which is himself. The king who laid down his life for his followers that we might have life in him. Won't you pray with me? Father, as we prepare to come to your table this morning, we pray that you would enable us to hear this invitation to follow you, to allow you to make us into the fishers of men and women that you have called us to be. Lord, that we would be excited about the opportunity to share the good work that you're doing that we would know for certain that you are the very best thing in this world. Lord, and that we would give up everything to follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Historically, in many traditions, as uh, believers approach the table, there's a dialogue that goes on between the congregation and the pastor, and that dialogue is 